Truth Jihad Radio is 100% crowdfunded and therefore fearless and independent. Please help us stay that way. You can subscribe at my Substack. That's kevinbarrett.substack.com. Or you could send a one-time PayPal donation to truthjihad at gmail.com. Yeah. The key thing is, don't be inhaling, don't be ingesting. Stay inside, don't drink, or eat anything. These are important questions. I understand that. Highest moment the last eight years. Hmm. Highest moment the last eight years. Well, I think the, the most important, the most compelling was uh, was 9-11 itself. Welcome, this is the special live edition of Truth Jihad Radio. I'm Kevin Barrett broadcasting live from, well, not on the street here in Saidia, Morocco, but I might as well be. I'm actually up on the stuff in my studio, which has not yet been turned into a real studio, so it has lousy sound, plenty of echo. You'll be getting traffic noises coming in through the windows, which I really can't close or I would really cook. There's the uh, late afternoon sun streaming through these windows, and the sun here in Morocco in summer is really hot, so I have a choice between either having uh, even more imperfect sound than it would otherwise be and uh, not cooking myself or just cooking myself for a very slight gain in audio quality, and I prefer not to cook. I let my wife do that. I'm a male chauvinist pig Muslim over here having a good time eating couscous after the Friday prayer and basking in the glow of the decline of the American empire, which is what we're going to be talking about today. Second hour guest, Gordon Duff, former CIA fixer. I think I'm allowed to say that, although he won't be. Uh, or, you know, they'd have him shot. Anyway, he's going to come on and talk about the Imran Khan situation. He has personally advised Imran Khan and the Niger situation. He has personally advised and apparently been paid rather well to consult with the top levels of the Nigerian government, which is pushing back against the coup in Niger. So that should be an interesting uh, exchange in the second hour with uh, one of my favorite uh, retired uh, imperial spooks who has to some extent seen the light. In the first hour, we're going to go up against the Empire uh, head-on with Brett Redmayne Titley. hope I'm pronouncing his name right. I have not actually had Brett on before. He's got a new book out, The World Gone Mad. Uh, it's that's, that's the catch from the subtitle. The full title is There, On-Scene Reporting from a World Gone Mad. And I just read the whole thing straight through, and it is a fantastic book. And it makes me even gladder that I am here in Morocco, somewhat outside of the empire. Uh, not quite, but I'm getting there. So, hey, welcome, Brett. How are you doing? Yeah, good morning, Kevin. Doing very well. Thanks for having me on your show. Yeah, good to have you. I loved your book. Now, you can turn off your video. It's actually a really good shot, and I will have a, have you on for a video sometime. But this is just pure audio, so you know, all you're doing is messing with bandwidth and giving us a really big file. There we go. So we're, we're now doing... Audio only on Revolution.Radio, the finest of listener-sponsored networks. All-out free speech here at Revolution.Radio. That's never going to change. So, Brett, uh, what man, your, your book is uh, is very powerful. It's uh, <laughs> I I really I couldn't put it down. It's like um, that that uh, the way you string it together with the uh, unfortunate uh, police killing of that, that poor kid who, Evan Quick, who borrowed his mom's car 
<laughs> the full weight of the imperial control apparatus descended on him like a hammer. And uh, and they're descending on a lot of people in a lot of places. Um, so, hey, it, it's a great book. And maybe you could tell us how you conceived of it. Uh, well, it is a compilation of some of my better on-scene reporting. Uh, as you know, Kevin, on-scene reporting is sort of my forte or my emphasis. Uh, so I went through a, a lot of what I've done over the last 12 years and just culled, you know, 18 of the good stories. Uh, as you did mention, I kind of strung the uh, first uh, ch- or first story about Evan Quick throughout the book as a way to sort of entice the reader to go through the book, you know, in, in its entirety. So apparently that's uh, worked out well. Um, you know, the, the stories that I do on scene are really try- are designed to be more exemplary of other issues as well. And perhaps you found that to be the case. You know, most of those uh, stories could be applied to other things worldwide, you know, beyond my own personal work. Yeah, and it's an interesting selection uh, of, of places. You know, we lead with San Diego, which apparently is sort of a, a home base for you, with a couple of Los Angeles things nearby. And then, you know, we're also off to, you know, to, to Turkey, uh, to Lebanon, uh, to, to the environs of the current war in Ukraine. Uh, and so uh, how do you choose where to go and, you know, what, what takes you to these particular scenes for on-scene reporting? Uh, I think it starts first with my love of traveling, uh, you know, regardless of journalism. And then, of course, the subject matter. You know, Lebanon would be a great example. Um, you know, I, I'm actually one of the few journalists who stood on the Israeli-Lebanese border. Uh, that was quite an adventure, as you probably saw in the book, having to go through uh, military clearance, et cetera, so forth, to be able to do just that. Um, you know, I was also there for the, uh, the, the Lebanese election. I'm actually a big proponent of Hezbollah. I think they're very much demonized unfairly uh, for what they've actually done for their country. And a lot of what I try to do as a journalist, especially with my on-scene work, is to provide the truth about these matters. And I think that going to the location uh, provides information that you just won't get uh, from the periphery. When you're there, you have the locals telling you things that you would never hear in the mainstream news. And that makes for the better story. It does. And it also makes you wonder why the people who aren't being paid a lot better than people like you and I, for that matter, uh, who are supposed to be doing the on-scene reporting, are mostly huddled up in hotel bars and things like that. I mean, couldn't they get better stories if they did what you do? Oh, sure, but they don't want to. Uh, first off, you have budgets that are being cut. Uh, you also have uh, many of the news services using the same video clips, the same uh, text and copy uh, for their own uh, you know, usage. Uh, so they're basically piggybacking off of each other. Uh, therefore, you get a very singular narrative. Uh, also, those guys are, like you say, staying in high-profile uh, uh, high hotels with expense accounts, et cetera, so forth, that you know, I could only dream of. And they're co-opted. Uh, they have to do the, uh, the service that their publisher and their, you know, wants and then the service that their editors will allow. I assume that there's probably quite a few very good journalists out there working for mainstream media who are very frustrated at the, you know, the filtration, if you will, from the publisher and the editor, uh, not allowing them to do the good work that they would like to do. I think they're becoming more few and far between. Uh, but those of us who do gravitate to on-scene reporting uh, in an honest manner are very few indeed. Uh, in a recent article, I referred to Paul Craig Roberts, you know, one of our contemporaries in news, as you know, who bemoaned, I think the quote was, you know, where are Woodward and Bernstein when we need them? And I sort of responded tongue-in-cheek, well, we've been here the whole time, Mr. Roberts, but uh, none of us work for the, you know, the Washington Post. And I think that's very true. You know, to get honest reporting, you have to get beyond mainstream media and therefore beyond the realm of the control. 
That's right. And it, your book, I think, helps us realize how so much mainstream reporting is more just really propaganda, that it's they have a, a narrative that is going to make their shareholders comfortable, their executives comfortable, uh, to some extent the audience comfortable, the power structure comfortable, and everything just has to be tailored to fit that narrative. So why bother to even go to the scene and find out what really happened? Like with the Evan Quick shooting, as you point out, that really appears to have been essentially almost like a propaganda stunt telling us, hey, if you get out of line, this is what's going to happen to you. This gigantic squadron of militarized police, you know, driving tanks and whatever they're throwing at the police departments these days, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of super heavily armed cops are going to come rolling up to your doorstep, you know, like, like a, a battalion, a military battalion, and then they're going to just, you know, set up and terrorize the neighborhood and then, you know, just coolly, calmly, and methodically blow you away, you know, just like they did at Waco or Ruby Ridge or what have you. Uh, and it's a propaganda thing. The whole point of that entire episode is that message that gets broadcast to the public that, you know, if you get out of line, uh, our militarized police state is just going to squash you like a bug. And, and you were there, and you saw what really happened. And did you think that the the contradiction between that actual message that they're sending, which is, you know, get out of line and we squash you, and then the mainstream media official narrative, which is, oh, this crazy guy, you know, shot at police and, you know, the poor police responded professionally. But unfortunately, you know, they, I guess he, he ended up killing himself with a shotgun or something. Uh, you know, the tension between the ridiculous lie of the official story published in the media and then that sort of unconscious but very real message that's really being sent, which is that, you know, we're going to squash it like a bug, that, that, that actually works to terrorize people even more because they see that not only are they going to squash you like a bug if you get out of line, but they're going to peddle this ridiculous big lie about it that everybody is kind of going to realize at some level is a big lie, but they're still going to get away with it. Uh, you know, I think a lot of the big lies in media work that way, 9-11, JFK, these sorts of outrageously big lies that everybody kind of knows are lies, but that just makes them even more effective from a social control standpoint. No, I agree with you, and I kind of point that out in the article about Evan Quick. Uh, one thing that's uh, sort of a, a hindsight to the Evan Quick story was that the Jeffrey Dorner uh, incident uh, that ended up with him being burned to a crisp up in Big Bear after a very long police chase uh, was full of holes, uh, in, like many stories are. Uh, this Because this uh, particular story of Evan Quick came so close after the Dorner reaction by the police, uh, they went to an increased reaction after that applied to uh, Evan Quick in my neighborhood. Uh, you know, so were they trying to send a signal? Absolutely. Uh, was that signal even stronger because of the Dorner incident? Uh, certainly it was. Uh, so, yeah, the, the reaction was incredible in my mind. As I document, you know, over 140 police in my little 4th Street neighborhood, you know, three MRAPs, you know, right down to a drone and, you know, the whole nine yards. And they cleared out the neighborhood, as you read in the, in the uh, article. You know, I was the only one left standing, and I would take you to Tasha uh, quickly on the on the assertion that you make that Evan Quick killed himself with a shotgun. I, I didn't uh, say no, that. that. That's the official version. Oh, I see. I'm, I'm sorry. I misunderstood you. Yes, that is the official version. As it says in the book, when I went to the press conference after that very long night to challenge that narrative, I was pro prohibited from coming in by three very large police officers. 
So they wanted to maintain that narrative of the police had prevailed against, you know, a heroin addict uh, who would you know, eventually kill himself. And that just substantially wasn't true. Yeah, it's 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 kind of amazing, especially in this era of people questioning police shootings. Although, when, what year was this, the Evan Quick shooting? Uh, I want to say eight years ago, just going off the top of my head. So that was before George Floyd and all those things. Yeah, it really was. It was considerably before that. I, you know, like I said, I want to say about eight years ago. So, yeah. And it, this was just one, one of those things that just happens outside your window one day, and you look out and realize that you've got a real big story on your hands. And uh, if you take the time to investigate it, even though it's not in Lebanon or whatever, it's easily as good a story as any that I've covered worldwide. Do you think that people like Paul Craig Roberts have missed something in reacting to George Floyd and similar incidents where suddenly, you know, the BLM movement arose and we had uh, a bunch of, uh, well, the, got some of the cops involved in some of these things have ended up serving long jail sentences and things like that. And there's been uh, this rise of a very powerful and to some extent establishment-backed movement against uh, police excess and police uh, murder. And so people like Paul Craig Roberts have kind of reacted, you know, gone to the, this other extreme and seen uh, BLM and all of the, the riots of the summer of uh, 2020 uh, as symptoms of the current establishment making, you know, war on the people and siding with the criminals and all this sort of thing. But doesn't Roberts miss the fact that there is this huge problem of a combination of this small percentage of police officers who are out and out psychopaths and often covered up for by the rest of the forest, and then this larger kind of authoritarian style of American policing that does these sorts of things like they did to Evan Quick that are just unnecessary. Yeah, well, you've got sort of two sides of the coin, as you point out, Kevin. I mean, we have this minimalization of police forces nationally, and then we have draconian reactions, is what we saw in Marion, uh, uh, Marion County, uh, Kansas, this past Friday. Uh, so we sort of have two sides of that. I think in, in some veins, police are becoming more and more aggressive, and in some uh, some veins, due to the funding and the impetuses of their local sort of uh, liberal communities, uh, they're standing down. We have incidents of entire police forces quitting now because they feel disrespected, uh, and they're sort of giving the Black Lives Matter-esque uh, groups what they want, which is a lack of police presence. And then what are they finding? That crime goes through the roof. Um, also, you know, referring to Black Lives Matter, I think the hypocrisy of Black Lives Matter has now been very, very uh, specifically revealed. Uh, you know, its cause was commendable, but it was co-opted by people who had their own selfish interests at heart. Uh, you know, the, the leaders of Black Lives Matter being found to have absconded with significant uh, amounts of funding that was given by, say, the Ford administration and others. And they do th did things like put it into houses, and their excuse was, well, we were preventing you know, the money being taken by the white man. And uh, that's not a racial statement. That was their own statement. So there's been a lot of uh, uh, vilification of Black Lives Matter once it came under the proper microscope. I mean, St. George Floyd being one of those people. Um, he was not the saint that we were, you know, were led to believe that he is. Uh, I think you can now see the same reaction happening in the woke world. Uh, initially, everyone was too scared to stand up and objectively critique the woke world as they were uh, uh, they failed to objectively critique Black Lives Matter. But here we are, and the world is gaining strength on that matter, and rightfully so, because objectively, as it was with Black Lives Matter, the woke world does not have an objective foundation to stand on. It has one, really, of intimidation. 
Yeah, would you say there's been a kind of a, a big, you know, downhill slide on the left in these various movements uh, from Occupy, which actually, you know, Occupy seemed to have a lot of potential. It never realized its potential because nobody ever managed to focus it on some issue or allied set of issues that where progress actually could have been made. You know, going after the banksters is 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 noble, but you know what what do you want to get out of it? Well, maybe insist on public banking. We're not going home until we get public banking or something like that. Might have actually worked, but it was still it seemed like a uh, pretty fresh and overall well conceived movement, uh, despite its its ultimate failings. But since then, you know, from Black Lives Matter, as you say, taking a, a noble purpose and then you know running it off the road to the woke world that we see today, which is turning into a dystopian nightmare, it seems that the left has really gone downhill. And why is that? What happened to the American left? Well, in an article that I did uh, quite a while ago, you know, the day American activism died, I talked a lot about Occupy as being a, a, a shining example of what might have been. Uh, I'd like to sort of critique you a little bit on what you said there, uh, Kevin, only in the sense that I was very invested with Occupy. I had great enthusiasm for him. I was embedded in the parks in uh, in uh, New York as well as in Washington and in Los Angeles. Uh, as you might have read in the book, the, you know, the foreword in the book, uh, you know, basically relates my first experience with Occupy and how enthusiastic I was. Uh, I was also one of the... Uh, a uh, few journalists who really was embedded with them and was writing uh, uh, significant numbers of articles about what was really going on in the camps. Um, I would suggest that Occupy actually did an extremely good job of organizing nationally, uh, so much so that we were within three weeks of a national convention to certify a national platform and run a third party. Uh, as you're probably aware, what happened in 48 hours is uh, President Obama razzed all the camps. This was after Los Angeles went down. Los Angeles was the biggest one. It went down in November. Uh, everything else went down in February. And when they went down, it was all the camps. I would argue that Occupy was so successful that it scared the administration. Uh, we understood what I considered to be the, you know, the foundational argument, which is that the problem in this world is the system itself, and that system has to change dramatically, uh, but in favor of formal democracy. Uh, demo uh, um, Occupy was extremely all-inclusive. It was extremely well-organized within the camps. Uh, the things that I saw in Los Angeles, such as social services being provided by volunteers, the camp in Los Angeles was feeding 1,800 people a day breakfast and dinner, and I had the good fortune of sitting up on the steps and talking to the gentleman who was running that as a volunteer. He was very passionate, and he and the rest of the volunteers were doing what the L.A. City Council would not do, I mean, refused to do and still refuses to do. So it reminds so us of Hezbollah, doesn't it? Yes, very much so. It also reminds me of... Um, Oh, you know, uh, you know, Huey Newton's group in, in, uh, in, um, in Oakland, you know, when they did the same thing, you know, so, so there is a, a necessity for socialism that's always being put down, uh, by the draconian efforts, you know, of our administration. They don't want to see socialism come back and they've demonized it so well in America that most people consider any means of socialism to be tantamount to being communism going back to the Cold War. I would suggest that that's not the case at all and that American, America does need to return to prudent socialism. But I don't think you're going to see that. The country's going exactly the opposite direction. Yeah, yeah, this is going downhill. And, and your uh, chapter on the Trump rally is interesting. It's, uh, you know, you were right there in the, in the middle of the Trump rally talking to the people, and 
just like a lot of the mainstream reporting, the Trump rally goers don't come across as particularly coherent. Uh, but uh, as always, your your reporting, you know, has this authenticity that the uh, mainstream reporting lacks. So, what, what do you think uh, about the Trump movement? That, well, the Trump presidency, you know, turning into a disaster on various fronts, um, and then the post-Trump presidency turning into an even bigger disaster. At this point, frankly, the anti-Trump forces look to me to be even crazier and uh, more evil than the Trump forces. Uh, where, how did the, the Trump thing uh, take that turn, and where do you think it's all going? Well, I think it's symptomatic to the desperation of America right now, trying to gravitate to any candidate that, you know, in, in image-wise will serve their uh, greater goals. You know, America is struggling uh, dramatically. I think it's almost hilarious that people still consider Trump to be a successful president in his four-year tenure. Um, I fail to see that argument at all, except in very, very small examples, and most of them don't really matter. I, one of, you know, as an example, I think one of Trump's major um, victories, I guess you could call it, was basically removing the the funding for the VA from the public sector into the private sector, which really, you know, as much as it created um, benefits in terms of service to the veterans. Uh, in terms, it didn't streamline that the way that it had been done. So you have a lot more wastage now in the VA being, you know, as that money is being privatized, you know, towards private doctors, et cetera. Certainly that serves the veterans' interests, but in terms of the efficiencies of that, that, that money, I think that's been taken away. Um, you know, Trump is basically, in my view, just the image that he once was four years ago. Uh, that was taken away by Biden, um, you know, under very interesting circumstances. As you're probably aware, I was one of the few journalists who at the time was able to get his work published about what took place in the election. As I said earlier in our interview, I'm sure there was quite likely many other uh, uh, journalists that tried to do that, but they were restricted by their publishers and their editors from doing so at the time. You know, here we are two and a half years later and things have changed extremely dramatically. Um, you know, as, as I evaluate Trump, I think it's only fair to say that, you know, I haven't liked a presidential candidate at all since Lyndon Johnson. So my, you know, so my um, crit critique of Trump, <clears throat> although different from my critique of Biden or Obama or Bush one or two, is still a scathing critique of ineffective leadership uh, and, uh, and a lack of respect for the American public and the needs of the American public. I um, mean, I believe you were uh, formerly uh, with uh, the University of Wisconsin-Madison, uh, and as you're probably aware, they issued a, a report in conjunction with Princeton University a number of years ago that looked at all the uh, legislation passed by Congress over, I believe it was an eight-year period, and whether or not that, that legislation actually did have a direct benefit to the American people and or was actually popular amongst the American public. The answer on, uh, to both questions was no. It was not at all, and that was the metrics that were established by both universities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, legislation, uh, for the most part, has not been benefiting the American people for quite some time. I would I'd certainly agree with that. Uh, and as far as any accomplishments of Trump, I guess most of the people who, to some extent, support him, uh, people like Paul Craig Roberts, they seem to think that he was up against the warmongering deep state, that he was resistant to getting into this war with Russia that we're embroiled in now. Uh, so they see him as, as leaning towards being sort of a, uh, if not a fully uh, peace candidate, at least a sort of America first candidate who is at least a, a symptom of the uh, drawback of American empire. That is, you know, if we're going to have 
a peaceful uh, drawdown of American empire, maybe just like it took a Nixon to go to China, that it would take a right-wing populist type to turn us back into a normal country and bring back those 800-plus military bases that are all ringing the world and bring so much misery to the world. So a lot of folks think that Trump was sort of a baby step in that direction, uh, but perhaps a, a unsuccessful and incompetent one ultimately. Uh, in, in any case, do you see, see any hope in the political system that it will be able to come to terms with this loss of empire uh, without you know, drowning the world in blood? Well, again, in, in the four years that uh, Trump was president, I know of no example of him uh, you know, uh, restricting the expansionist in, you know, intentions of the American empire. I, I know of no example of that at all. Uh, mostly, I think he was an, an international embarrassment as he tried to take credit for other people's international foreign policy um, efforts. Uh, so in terms of drawing down the military, I don't think that he did um, to any great degree. Uh, he ran as far as, you know, he was going to, you know, empty the swamp and all that. He's still trying to do, he's doing the same thing. He's, going, he's saying exactly what he said, uh, you know, what we were seven years ago. However, functionally, when you looked at what Trump did with his cabinet, I mean, cabinet is always a reflection of what an a president intends to do. His cabinet was no no better than his predecessor's cabinet in any way. There was it was a change in names, but it was not a change in influence. You know, corporate influence. Well, possibly was worse. Actually. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, you, you certainly make that case. You want at least go parallel. But it's necessary that he's promising an improvement specifically through his cabinet. You know, to affect you know great changes in America, and then his cabinet turns out to be, as you said, you know, possibly worse than yeah, the Bolton previous. Bolton and Bolton and Pompeo. I mean, you know, you can't really get worse than that. Well, that's on the international foreign policy issue, and I, and I do agree. Yeah, exactly. And what you know, what Bolton tried to do, and what he's saying even now, is uh, tantamount to exactly what he was saying when he was working with Trump. You know, this is a man that literally would probably go to nuclear war if you know if he was the one to you know be given the button. So we're, you know, we're dealing with neocons, but we also have the military industrial complex that, you know, that cannot be ignored in all this in terms of its influence. And we have to look at the Israeli Zionist influence that goes hand in hand with that. And they all play into American foreign policy very directly from their financial impetus, as well as their insistence on quid pro quo for their supportive candidates. Now, this isn't specific to Trump by any means. I mean, you can look at what's taken place in the last two military appropriations budgets. Congress you know, approved them, but added an additional $80 billion beyond the Pentagon's request. I don't know if that's specific to this particular year. I've not seen that. But in the last two uh, years, that was very much the case. The American people should be outraged over that. Let's use an example. The uh, the, the federal education budget for America is not even $80 billion for an entire year. Yet we hand all this money to Ukraine, and then when uh, when an appropriation budget is, is actually passed by Congress, which is to be expected, they just arbitrarily add another $88 billion. I think it was 88 the first time, 80 the second. That's a huge amount of money without request and without necessity from the military, which is just, just flush with cash. So this is the unfortunate thing about promises made by presidential candidates. They're absolutely worthless. Yeah, I, I can't uh, disagree with that. Uh, it's interesting that, you know, yeah, you say people should be outraged as Congress you know, throws more money at the military than it asks for, as we throw more uh, dozens of billions of dollars at Ukraine. 
And there are some people who are outraged, but they're almost all on the so-called extreme right. It's, you know, these sort of people in the general Trump camp who were the ones who were outraged at all of the money going to Ukraine, whereas most of the so-called left doesn't really seem to mind it. And again, I, it just makes me wonder what happened to the left. Well, the left, you know, the definition of the left has changed dramatically over the last 30 years. You know, uh, without going to my machinations politically, there was a time where I considered myself to be a liberal. I would hate to have that mantle put on me nowadays because it's a very different definition. Uh, you know, this, de you know, this populism that they're trying to push forward is nothing more really than authoritarianism rebranded. Uh, not that the Republicans wouldn't do substantially the same thing if, you know, if they were holding the reins of power right now as well. I, I see a lot of hypocrisy on both sides. Uh, the candidate that I like right now, uh, for the opposite reasons is Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and I also like DeSantis. Uh, the reason I like them is because I believe that they have a sincerity that you don't see with Biden and that you don't see with Trump. I think that they are able to articulate, as I said, that the problems of this world are related to the system. Uh, they both are very skilled at standing on their own two feet and very sincerely uh, arguing their position in the face of their adversaries without using soundbite responses. This means that they have a command of their argument. You don't see this in politics very much. Everyone's too worried about saying the wrong thing, you know, losing a percentage overnight because you've said the wrong word, offended the wrong uh, microcosm of the public, you know, of the voters. Uh, what we need is, is uh, leaders who do have a platform that they specifically are trying to push, and they, they are unabashed in trying to put, you know, push that agenda. Uh, like I said, I think Kennedy understands that, and I think DeSantis does. I don't think that Trump does, and I don't think that Biden does at all. Uh, a lot of the you know, ancillary candidates, same thing. Look at Chris Christie. You know, there's not a word that's come out of that man's mouth that isn't a soundbite reaction to the press. You know, he's as insincere as the day is long. If you go back 40 years ago, I did not care for Ronald Reagan particularly, but I respected the man because he stood on his own two feet, he made decisions, and he took responsibility for his actions. I think that's a commendable uh, position from a political candidate, but you don't see it very much. So I would suggest that as much as the press is demonizing RFK Jr. and DeSantis, they're really going after both of those guys much harder than they are going after Trump. And certainly they're not touching Biden to any great degree, other than the, you know, the impeachment issues that are going on that are very, uh, very serious as well. But the, the peripheral candidates of RFK Jr. and, um, and DeSantis, I don't think their days are done. The, you know, the uh, press would like you to believe that they really don't have a chance. If you look at it from the Democratic side, I mean, how in the hell are they going to get Biden to the finish line on this one? You know, leave, and that leaves RFK Jr. standing, presumably. If you look on the other side, you know, uh, uh, Trump has his own problems. Uh, I do agree that a lot of those are fabricated to a great degree. However, he's got serious problems. This could leave DeSantis as the last man standing as well. Um, I don't know about yourself, but I, I read a lot of just by academic interest, things like Yahoo News, believe it or not, you know, uh, Fox News, believe it or not. But why? Because this is the, these are the bellwethers of the nation. You know, this, this is this is well, actually the bellwethers of journalism really being forced upon the nation, you know, conservative versus, Demo you know, versus liberal or, or democratic. So these are kind of the tea leaves, if you will, of, of the direction that the country is trying to go through the press, which is very, you know, very powerful, as you know. 
So um, what I'm seeing now is that demonization of RFK Jr. and DeSantis because they are extremely viable candidates. They do offer a message that would be very palatable uh, to the American voter if, in fact, the mainstream media allows that message to be consumed completely by those voters. Yeah, well, I agree that RFK Jr. and DeSantis are both unusually intelligent candidates. No question about that. They're both unusually capable. And, yes, you can see that by the way that they can speak extemporaneously and make sense and have command of the policies and the details that they talk about. And you mentioned that they're both sincere. I do see that with RFK Jr., with the possible exception of his bizarre statements about Israel. But with DeSantis, I'm not so sure. I haven't really gotten a sense of who DeSantis is and the mainstream propaganda painting DeSantis as uh, a little bit on the manipulative and psychopathic egotistical side. Uh, doesn't strike me as entirely implausible, but I'm certainly not convinced by it either. So maybe you can tell me a little bit more about how you would compare the sincerity of RFK Jr., which I think is palpable in most cases, to uh, to that of DeSantis, who a lot of folks seem to think is mostly interested in his own career, his own power, his own ego. Right. Well, that is the narrative being presented, especially with the, you know, the Disney issues that he's, you know, taken on down there, the pedophilia issues, you know, the imagery issues applied to pedophilia, you know, via Disney. Um, I would tell you that DeSantis caught my attention during COVID. Uh, as you may be aware, I spent a long time staying away or in front of the COVID restrictions. Um, it was interesting to me that Florida, uh, uh, did a, a different, uh, protocol, a different program than, say, California. Uh, one, uh, one that was much more laissez-faire in the way that it treated the public. You know, obviously Gavin Newsom was just the opposite, yet the, uh, that Florida did better than, than California in terms of its overall statistical, uh, you know, death rate and its mortality and hospitalizations and all that. Well, I was reading Scott Atlas's book, and, uh, that's, he was the one who was, uh, Trump's advisor towards the end, a very, uh, very well-qualified epidemiologist from Stanford. And he wrote a great book about what was going on behind the scenes with Fauci and Burks, et cetera, so forth. Leaving that out, what I found interesting is he talked about the fact that DeSantis actually called him directly and, and had already read a lot about uh, Atlas and had called him to confirm uh, what he wanted to do in Florida before he did it. He basically uh, sought expert advice uh, before making those decisions in Florida. And as I said, the, the results were better for Florida than they were in most states. To me, that's leadership. That's what I want out of a, you know, a candidate. I want a man who says, I don't know, and I'm going to find out the proper answers through science, not settled science, you know, through scientists who are not co-opted by, you know, the uh, pharmaceutical industry. So that's when DeSantis started getting my eye, you know, or my ear, if you will, because that, that's the kind of sincerity that I think a politician should offer. Um, you look at RFK Jr., very different program there. I mean, we've got a, here's a man with literally generations of influence going all the back to, all the way to, back to Joe Kennedy. You know, I mean, that's almost a hundred years. Uh, his affiliations, I can only guess at, but I'm sure that they're very, very, uh, broad. Um, his, his knowledge of the political system obviously is extremely good, you know, through his family ties as well. Uh, he's also extremely wealthy, uh, and he also has an, a, a track record of very strong sincerity of looking out for disenfranchised people, not necessarily yet in America, but worldwide. 
his his track record as an environmental lawyer is beyond reproach, and and he has done some of the best work in the world. Well, he shows uh, up. He shows up in your book with that uh, huge gas leak in Los Angeles, and he shows up uh, doing good work there. Exactly. You know, I initially thought he was just looking for uh, you know uh, clients, basically. You know, get the you know twenty percent uh, you know hit or thirty percent hit on the. Uh, contingency fees or something, but that wasn't the case. When I met him, uh, he was really a nice fellow, and he gave me a lot of information on Kamala Harris and uh, and uh, Jerry Brown at the time and how they were covering it up. I happened to be the only independent journalist who did crazy stuff like hike to the wellhead and uh, interview all the, the residents and, and brought the, uh, the, story, the proper story to bear while it was being covered up, very similar to many of the other stories that we've already discussed. So, um, so I took him to be very sincere, but, I, but once again, I think the fact that he had all this information on, on Harris and, on, uh, and Jerry Brown that I didn't necessarily have spoke to his, you know, affiliations, you know, his, his network, you know, as well as his sincere willingness to help others in the face of, once again, the system itself, because what took place at Porter Ranch was just another microcosm of the system reinforcing itself. Uh, you know, uh, benefiting, you know, the, the rich client or the rich uh, corporations that were involved in that story, as they were in many other stories. So for to see uh, RFK Jr. actually specifically personally fighting that, I think that's commendable. And we need a heck of a lot more politicians that are willing to do that, you know, stand up and, you know, on their, you know, on their two feet, take the, you know, the adversaries on very articulately and not back down an inch. If you've been following his uh, interviews, as they've been going after him, you know, he made an unfortunate faux pas on the Israeli thing, because as I mentioned, you know, the welcome to America, being elected does require the, you know, being anointed by the, you know, the Jewish lobby. There's no doubt about that. But other than that, his uh, presentations, you know, in front of CNN, you know, once again, the liberal side of things, as well as with Fox and many others, I think are very metered. I think they're very factual and they're very confident. And I want to see a politician who has that kind of confidence in the face of that kind of adversity from the system that really is pushing back against the candidate. But, you know, when you say that you have to be anointed by the Jewish lobby to have a chance of being elected president, isn't that, is that a little bit like saying, well, you know, you have to be anointed by the, you know, the, the polluters or the military-industrial complex or some other uh, really evil lobby. And, and you could even argue that the Israel lobby is in some ways the worst of any of them, given its, lead, its likely lead role in killing uh, RFK Jr.'s uh, uncle and father and in blowing up the World Trade Center on 9-11, among other outrageous crimes, that you know, if there was one uh, you know, evil force that one would want one's candidate for president to be strongly against, it would be the Israel lobby, wouldn't it? Well, I mean, yeah, the short answer is yes, but are you going to get elected on that platform? Absolutely not. I mean, you don't have a chance. You know, the, you know, the, the Zionist lobby is joined at the hips with the military industrial complex and the American, if not worldwide media. So as we've talked about sort of collectively in our conversation, media for me is really the biggest problem because that is the restriction of the filter of information. So uh, you, you look at, uh, you know, what needs to be done. I, I would suggest that, that RFK, you know, understands that better than others and is able to, you know, to fight that fight, and it has the willingness to do so. Yeah, I, I kind of think so, too. I actually wrote him in for president in 2020. And so just this spring when I was traveling to Morocco, getting ready for the move I just made two weeks ago here 
And in the middle of that trip and the jet lag and stuff, suddenly the news breaks he's actually running. It, it was kind of a surreal experience, as if this weird sort of individual hallucination that I had had back in 2020 and writing him in had suddenly taken on some kind of reality of its own. So, you know, I'm all very much uh, happy to see him running, and I have a lot of admiration for him. Uh, I do find the excess of his slavishness for the worst aspects of Israel to be really bizarre. I mean, you know, couldn't he say things that would be acceptable to the Israel lobby without, like, you know, kissing up to the likes of Netanyahu? Yeah, it is interesting because, you know, of course, he's going to need funding whether he likes it or not. So it'll be interesting to see as he plays both ends against the middle on that. Uh, one thing I would qualify, Kevin, I'm used the term evil applied to Israel. Certainly they are guilty of a lot of evil indiscretions. But I think the better way to put it is that they're extremely cunning, extremely methodical, and extremely uh, well-planned in the things that they do. Uh, you could say this basically about uh, the Russians or the Chinese as well, you know, in a, in a world that is, you know, always exists in the short term. So, um, you know, so are they effective? Yeah. I mean, it would be like any politician. You can't, you can't help but sort of respect their, you know, their sincerity, if you will, their abilities to get the job done on behalf of Israel. But unfortunately, in this country, we have what's, what has been coined dual loyalty among so many politicians that want to basically portend that they make America first while they're sucking on the tit of Israeli money. And uh, I think we all know, anyone who's studied you know, Zionist control knows that that money is indeed control. They, in, they in fact, they intend to uh, uh, you know, get a return for their investment, no doubt about that. As any corporation, take the Jewish Zionism issue out of it for the moment, any corporation that's going to invest in a politician, is going, especially since Citizens United, is going to insist on a return on, you know, return for, uh, return on investment for their, uh, involvement with that candidate. So you're sort of stuck there because that's the way it is. And you can look at people like Norman Finkelstein. I mean, Norman Finkelstein is Jewish. He's been verbose about that. You could look at, uh, 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 Mike, uh, uh, Mersheimer and Walt's book, The Israeli Lobby. It's about 14 years old now, but an extremely good study objectively of the, uh, of the control and influence of the Israeli lobby in the United States. Uh, certainly, Walton Mersheimer didn't use the term evil, uh, but, but effective. I imagine they use that quite often. So I think there is a little bit of a difference here. You know, unfortunately, the, you know, that influence does create some evilness within the American society. You know, the priorities, as we talked about, in terms of you know, military funding versus social funding. You know, that being just one, you know, you see it being shifted to the military and you see also uh, this strange allegiance to Israel as being some for, for some strange reason, nece you know, necessary uh, for our foreign policy. I think anyone who objectively looks at Israel understands that they're nothing but a pain in the ass to American foreign policy. But because of their involvement and influence in Congress, we continue to back them up, no matter how much weapons we give them, no matter how much indiscretions they create in the Middle East, no matter how many times they invade Lebanon, which apparently they're trying to do again here. So, but I, I think a lot of that evil that you're alluding to, which does exist, starts by the effect, it starts with the effectiveness of their influence in, in, in our Congress, in our presidency, you know, and I think also in our Supreme Court. Well, I, I agree, it's very effective evil, but I think there's something sort of deeper than it just being effective. It seems to me that the Zionists are really the the world leaders at being perpetrators who pose as victims. And they use their fake victimhood to enable them to get away 
with even more outrageous crimes than you know, they, like you know, all of, all entities, be they corporations or nations and their governments and so on, they do have a tendency to try to you know put out a narrative about they themselves being the good guys and their adversaries being the bad guys. That's normal, but it seems to me the Zionists have perfected this extreme version of that, in which they are a lot worse, you know, than most entities, and they lie more outrageously about it than most entities, and they blame the victims more than most entities. And so, you know, when somebody like Martha Stout in, in her various books on psychopaths says the number one sign of a psychopath is somebody who's, you know, always the victim, you know, they're always using what she calls the pity ploy. Oh, feel sorry for me. Uh, I've been persecuted throughout millennia. I've been kicked out of 136 countries, and it's always been their fault. It's never anything that I did. You know, it's like, uh, you know, my Irish ancestors were thrown out of every bar in Ireland, and it was always the bartender's fault, you know. So there's, some, <laughs> there's something going on there that leads to these excesses, like the murder of the Kennedys and like 9-11, which I put essentially at the feet of the Zionists. Yeah, many do. I mean, there's always going to be speculation on who was actually, you know, pulled the trigger, you know, authorized pulling the trigger. You know, we've got the CIA in that one as well. Uh, but no, you're totally right. Um, you know, it's like, you know, there's a, an old joke that's been around forever. You know, what's the difference between the uh, cow and the Holocaust? You know, uh, I presume you know the answer to that. Uh, <laughs> go ahead. For the, for the listeners who don't, go ahead. Okay. You can't milk a cow for 75 years. Uh-huh. <laughs> Which goes to what you were saying. Now, of course, I'll be attacked for you know using that uh, exa- you know, joke, if you will. You know, I, I, I just heard a, a, a bing go off in the ADL headquarters, uh, <laughs> where Toronto or wherever it is. But yeah. Oh yeah, no, it, it's crazy. I mean, you look at say David Irving. I mean, I, I'm reading again. Uh, you know, Hitler's War. Amazing. I mean, consider literally one of the best historians in modern history, a man of, of impeccable credentials, but because his credibility was so good and because he uh, objectively looked at the you know uh, issues regarding the Holocaust or the representation of there being a Holocaust, uh, they went after him hammer and tongs. Like they've destroyed the man, absolutely destroyed the man. And uh, and why? Because they can't stand that the truth of the matter would actually become public property. So there, you know, as it is with many issues, that we, as we've alluded to, this is the big one. Uh, the 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 objective definition of the Holocaust is not the same deno, or, uh, denotation that the, the the Jewish lobby would have us believe. And it's a long subject. I'm too much for this interview, but they don't want to see any wedge driven into their claim of being the victim. And close examination of the realities of, you know, uh, German uh, or Nazi indiscretions applied to the Jewish faith are, at the very least, hyperbole, and if not, great distortion. But until people do read people, you know, other good authors like David Irving or read, you know, examinations of these subjects, uh, they'll be as ignorant as they were over COVID or over the election or the Ukraine war. And that, you know, that is the fault of the media applied to, you know, the control of the media by the Zionist lobbies. Yeah, well, I, I have to agree with that. I actually got interested in the Holocaust issue because I kept getting slandered as supposedly a supporter of so-called Holocaust deniers. And this at a time when I knew nothing about that issue. <laughs> My Wikipedia page kept showing up with this bizarre stuff sourced to some anonymous, obscure blog claiming that I had somehow voiced support for these Holocaust deniers that I didn't, I didn't even know who two out of three of them were. 
And I couldn't get that taken down from the Wikipedia page for years and years. And all of this was to smear me in my 9-11 truth work. And so that actually got me interested. Wow, if, if these people have that kind of power and can lie that shamelessly, and they're so interested in the Holocaust, you know, maybe I should look into that issue. And so I did. And the next thing you know, I realized that, yeah, it looks like the, uh, the so-called revisionists have a more plausible uh, factual case, you know, at least, you know, based on introductory reading on the matter. It's quite shocking how the, you know, what we're told in the mainstream is about, about that looks so shaky the minute that you actually investigate it. I'm glad to hear that you have looked into that. Speaking of stuff you've looked into, if you looked into the, well, the Ron Unz book is the best known uh, of the many uh, explorations of where COVID may have come from in terms of biological warfare. Uh, and Ron's book and then the video I made with him, which now has well over a million views, uh, suggests that there's very strong circumstantial evidence that there was a U.S. bio-war attack on China presumably designed to slow Chinese economic growth and ultimately narrow the difference between U.S. and Chinese economic growth. And, of course, that was very successful, apparently. Uh, that that uh, differential has narrowed considerably. In any case, I wonder if you've, if you've read Unz's book on that or seen the other material and what you think of it, because I, I find that very convincing. Well, you know, I've not read Brown's book, in all honesty. I've been moving on with other things. I read a few uh, little snippets that he sent out about it. I have great respect for Ron. Uh, he's a little bit like ourselves in, in tone, if you will, that, uh, if you will, standing on your own two feet and articulating a controversial position based on facts is a commendable position to have. Ron takes that all the time. Uh, he's also a man that can change his opinion based on what, you know, what used to be called an, a developed or informed opinion, which he's constantly promoting with Unz review. I'm, you know, very pleased to be part of that stable of writers. Uh, not for my own success, but for the fact that, you know, that Ron is committed to two sides of an argument. A uh, good example of that was uh, I'd, I'd written an article about uh, the Chinese economy, which is now becoming uh, somewhat accurate in the last few weeks. However, at the time, uh, Ron had run, run a couple articles on, Ch on Chinese economy from like uh, uh, Godfrey Roberts and people like that. Uh, he rejected my article initially and said, well, I've already got enough of that. And he got back to me 20 minutes later. He said, oh, I just reviewed it, Brett. You're on the other side of the coin here. He says, I'm going to run you and headline you because I want the other side. Excellent. Why don't we have more publishers that do that? You know, th this is what we need. So, you know, going back to, you know, Ron's treatment of coronavirus and many others, I mean, you know, you talk about the Kennedy assassination and et cetera and so forth. Uh, Ron as an academic has a great way of presenting his information in a, in a factual way uh, that is convincing. And I think, you know, more people should do that. You know, Ron is basically a historian. I think that's the way he writes. He's a bit like a David Irving. You know, he relies on facts to create the narrative for his work. So, you know, when you get to coronavirus, uh, I, from, it's my understanding that most of what Ron is saying now is really what a lot of us digested in the first month or so. Then, of course, that was blown to pieces by the media, and now it's been put back together again by Ron Unz and many others, you know. You could say the same thing uh, for the election. You know, in the first month or so after the election, people like myself were just conspiracy theorists, and now we are, you know, uh, vindicated, you know, uh, through our work. So, and I think that's what good historians do. You know, they have to take the, uh, you know, the abuse. They have to stand up strongly, but they have to have the current, you know, the courage of their facts, and they have to be willing to present them strongly. 
So I have a lot of respect for Ron, yourself, and many other you know, journalists that I, I could state that do stand up in the face of this uh, headwind of, of false claims and false information that's propagated by the media. And as I'm sure you know, I'm sure Ron knows, and I certainly know, it's not easy. It's hard to you know to continue that fight on a regular basis and not just put your pen away and say, well, that's enough. You know, so uh, hats off to anybody, you know, any good journalist that doesn't. Yeah, well, it's gotten harder since people get deplatformed for questioning these various things. And, you know, that censorship issue has gotten so much worse than I ever imagined it could be. You know, I sort of thought back 15 years ago that the Internet would remain free because it structurally had to. You know, it was designed to not have bottlenecks and choke points. And then there was that uh, Communications Decency Act and its provision that if you're a common carrier, you can't treat any legitimate speech differently from any other legitimate speech. Otherwise, you become a publisher. You become liable for damages for anything that you, quote-unquote, publish. So given those two things, the the Internet structure, the communication structure, and the legal structure, it just didn't seem possible to me that there would ever be any major Internet censorship of constitutionally protected speech. And then Trump happened, and then COVID happened, and now we're living in this dystopian world where all of these big Internet common carriers are tweaking AI-helped algorithms to try to silence people like us. Anybody who's not amplifying the mainstream propaganda line, which is mostly a big lie, is likely to get, if not deplatformed, um, at, at least uh, de-reached and you know held you know kept in some little free speech zone playground ghetto uh and and so how have you dealt with this i mean you're you're somebody who's been pushing the boundaries for quite some time and i'm sure you've you've seen this kind of uh wall of censorship closing in on us uh, how do you deal with that um that's a good question um you know i'm one of those type a personalities so i'm not easily defeated um I also see the, you know, the, uh, I write, how to put this? I, I write for the, 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 sort of the rest of the world. I, I write for the, the people that need to rise up. I write for the people that I want to encourage to get angry. You know, I write for the people that I want to react to, you know, their world around them. Unfortunately, that world is not necessarily America, much less Britain, where I spend a lot of my time. That world is the third world, you know, which I've, you know, written, you know, visited as you've ta- talked about. So, you know, you have to keep in mind, or I think a, a journalist has to keep in mind what the greater good is, and also keep in mind that, you know, our goals are, you know, cannot be monetary. If that's the case, then you have to work for Reuters or whatever and prostitute yourself and get the hotel room and, the, you know, the private jet. For those of us who really care about the fundamentals of humanity, you know, the conscience of humanity, as I wrote in my, my article last week, you know, the war for your mind, you know, they're trying to change, you know, normal human thinking and normal human conscious, consciousness or conscience, you know, to something that's an aberration of those, you know, assets of, of, of the human mind. And I fight against that because, you know, we have to use our minds. You know, so many of the topics we've talked about today, if people would take the time in which to digest that information, they would likely change their opinion dramatically. But they don't take the time because they're not interested. So how do you get them interested? You hit them over the head with words. You use strong sentences. You use paragraphs that fight. And I think at that point, you get the, you get the attention of the reader. And once you finally get the attention of the reader, if you can give them the passion to now fight, I think then you've done your job. 
Well, I think you've done yours in your book there, on scene reporting from a world gone mad. It certainly got my attention, and it uh, it, it pissed me off. I, I was there with you the whole way, and I hope uh, you go a lot further and crank out a whole lot more great stuff like it, because it's it's fantastic. So, hey, shout out to you, uh, Brett Redmayne Tidley. Hope you come back on the show before too long. Uh, keep up the great work, and God bless. Yeah, likewise to you, you know, Kevin. Thank you very much for having me on your show today. It's a great pleasure to be with you once again, and keep up your great work as well. And like I said, there's too few of us who are standing on our own two feet on behalf of others, so let's keep up that great work. Sounds like a plan. All right, take care, Brett. Okay, thank you, Kevin. Yep. Bye-bye. That's uh, Brett, Redmayne Titley, uh, great new book there. Check it out. You can find the link by going to truthjihad.com. Find the radio schedule link. Click on that. Find today's show, and you'll find a link to the book. Coming up in the second hour, Gordon Duff, who has advised Imran Khan, as well as the government of Nigeria, might have some interesting things to say about what's happening to Imran Khan, who's now imprisoned, even though he should be uh, Prime Minister of Pakistan, as well as what's happening over in Niger and the role of Nigeria in that. So it should be an interesting second hour, too. Stick around for that. Kevin Barron here. TruthJihad.com is the website. We'll be right back. Thank you.